Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from the usual, from Montecito, California. Although today, again, uh, will be my last podcast from the location where I'm at. I am in the middle of what I would call musical rentals right now, waiting to kind of land at a final destination. Uh, Long story, but if you're coming to Dallas... I'll be happy to explain it to you. Again, uh, boy, by now I think we might be sold out, but you may want to check it out. Our upcoming event, it's a meetup in Dallas, Fort Worth, and that uh, is coming up on uh, October 1st and 2nd. I'll actually be there a little early. I think I'll be there on that Wednesday, uh, but you know the activities are typically starting on Friday evening with a cocktail party and then Saturday, the event and tour and and then another cocktail party and, and, you know, lots of cocktails, lots of cocktails. But if you are there early, if you're getting there early, also let me know. Maybe we can catch up as well. And like I said, I think I'll get there Wednesday at some point, uh, but, you know, maybe hang out with some people on Thursday and, uh, you know, kind of kind of just, you know, have a little bit of a vac- vacation uh, while, while we're at it. Go to wealthformulaevents.com. Check it out if you have not done so yet. Again, I don't know. It's probably sold out by now, but I don't know. But check it out, and hopefully we'll get a chance to meet you in person. Now, the other thing I should remind you is, uh, you know, if you haven't had a chance to do so, if you want to participate uh, more in our community, there's a couple different ways to do that. If you want to start looking into potentially, you know, investing, uh, in things, uh, the way we do, we have a group, a Reg D group uh, called the Wealth Formula Credit Investor Club. You can go to wealthformula.com and sign up for that. And also, if you're just interested in, you know, an online community, people to talk to and all that stuff, we have Wealth Formula Network. And if you're interested in, so who's good for Wealth Formula Network? Wealth Formula Network's good for people who like to geek out on personal finance, but their friends and family and all that stuff, uh, they, they don't want to listen to them. So it's kind of a nice community for you to have if you want to get granular in this stuff. And I could tell you, it is, it's really, I learn something all the time. I mean, our, we had a meeting yesterday and of course, Ian Kurth, who we've had on a few times, Dr. Ian, you know, broke down some numbers on, you know, 1031s versus, you know, bonus depreciation and all that stuff. And boy, I came off feeling like, man, I, I really learned something from that group. So there's always something to learn. I mean, I'm certainly not a guy who uh, thinks I know everything. Every time I think I know something, there are 
many, many more things to learn. Uh, if you're one of those types who likes to join and participate in those types of things, check it out. It starts out with a course, your roadmap to real wealth, and then you have access to our Facebook group and then these live biweekly phone calls. They're not phone calls, they're Zoom video chats. I don't know what's the proper thing to call those, but they're on Zoom. You can see each other, you talk to each other. So go to wealthformularoadmap.com, check it out. And hopefully we'll have you on there. Now, as far as today's show, you know, there's a saying, and I think it was Bill Gates. I don't know. I've heard it from so many people. I don't know who really said this first. And then there's permutations to it, too. But the bottom line is the idea is that people grossly overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and grossly underestimate what they can accomplish over five years. And uh, think about that. It's actually pretty profound. And the fact that we can't accomplish much in that first year often makes us feel demoralized and makes us quit. I remember the first time I ever started podcasting some years ago. And, you know, I did a few podcasts and I noticed the only person who seemed to be listening was me and you know, me a couple more times to make sure that things were working and I checked my downloads and there would be like five downloads, right? That lasted a while. And I actually had quit. I did like three or four podcasts. I think if you look at the podcast, if it goes back that far, I did like three or four podcasts and then I quit for a year. Then I, I came back and I was like, you know, I'm just going to do this. But, you know, it's hard to plant seeds like that and, you know, play the long game all the time. But when I look at that statement about overestimating what people you know can do in a year, ultimately quitting because they think they couldn't accomplish something, and underestimating what they can accomplish over five years, I think to myself on my 48th birthday, which was actually yesterday, September 8th, I look back in the last five years and it's hard to argue the point. I mean, the, the quote is very, very accurate because five years ago, well, this podcast did not exist, at least certainly not the reincarnation of the podcast after I'd quit after the first year. You know, and today, Well Formula Podcast gets, well, about twenty five to 30,000 downloads per month. Not enormous, but it's it's pretty significant. And we have an investor club that is significant with over 2,000 accredited investors. And that group, that accredited investor group, we have about $800 million in assets under management. You know, and those numbers are staggering. And I'm in awe of what we've created together over this short period of time. But the bigger lesson here is that even though it may not seem like it, all the things that you're doing now do they absolutely do make a difference over time. And if you don't like change, you're out of luck because the thing is, change is inevitable in life. There is no doubt. Things are just going to change. You're not going to look the same. You're not going to act the same. You're not going to have the same job or whatever over a period of time, no matter what, eventually you'll do something else, whether that's retirement or some, you know, things constantly change. Your kids grow up. You know, so change is inevitable. And so if you don't like change, you're out of luck. And change, you can either fight it, right, which isn't going to get you far, or you can help guide it in the direction you want to go. The same can be said about investing. The type of investing we do in our community requires planting seeds. 
And we plant those seeds today, and then we wait patiently uh, in most cases for a few years for something to happen. And it's hard, but just think about those people who sat on the sidelines uh, over the past five, six years thinking that, you know, they're, uh, we've been listening to all of the pundits and the podcast ecosystem talking about how, you know, the zombie apocalypse was coming. And in the meantime, Western Wealth Capital, for example, was delivering average annualized returns of over 30% to its investors. So it's funny because we've sort of come full circle on this notion about time is money. You know, time is money. People use that in the context of they work harder, they can make more money or something like that. But in investing, time is money as well, because the variable that people often don't think about is the variable of time, right? Understand that investing in real estate requires some level of faith. You can't track your net worth daily on an app like you can with some other stuff. However, once you're in it for a few years, you start to see things come to fruition in a big way. And I gotta tell you, I mean, we have some very exciting stuff happening with some of our earlier investments that are can really see things coming to fruition. And once you've been through this cycle a few times, it really gets exciting and you really, you know, you get some faith in the process. But again, the choices and investments you make today, they are not for, you know, tomorrow or the next day. They're for three to five years from now, typically. And the longer you wait to start, the longer it's going to take for you to get the results that you want. So it's time to get off the sidelines. That's the moral of the story, okay? And so while you take action today, it's also important to contemplate your next move in the future so you don't sit around and just kind of hurry up and wait. So I take a, you know, that's a big part of what I do. I'm constantly thinking about my next move while I currently, you know, do what I need to do now. And in my case, you know, one of the things I've been interested in is the hotel industry, you know, these holiday ends, that kind of stuff, you know, uh, I've been interested in that for a while and I've kind of been monitoring that, collecting data and looking for the most opportune time to potentially get involved. On this week's Wealth Formula podcast, I reconnect with hotel broker Steve Usher, who, you know, I basically wanted to interview in part because I wanted to get an update myself on the hotel investing landscape. So, when we come back from these messages, listen to my conversation with Steve Usher. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. 
with an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula podcast uh, is Steve Usher. Steve was on not too long ago. It was during the pandemic. He's a founder of a Pasadena-based Titan Hospitality, which is uh, founded in uh, 1999, which focuses on hotel brokerage assignments uh, located throughout California. Since its founding, Titan has closed upwards of, is that what, $2 billion? That's a lot of zeros, so I couldn't tell for sure, but I think it's $2 billion. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Steve. And prior to founding Titan, Steve worked uh, with Cushman and Wakefield in uh, CBRE in San Francisco, so he certainly knows uh, real estate. Steve, welcome back to uh, Wealth Hi, Podcast. Good to see you, Buck. So, you know, I keep wanting to talk to you because of my own sort of interest in potentially getting into the hotel space. We talked, you know, sort of right during the worst of the pandemic and at that time, you know, I think you were honest in saying basically there's nothing going on. There really is no opportunity right now and no one's going to finance anything. Uh, has anything changed? You know, I, I don't remember what month it was, but, you know, it's probably what's last summer, uh, yeah. I think, when we spoke. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, a lot's changed. I think that, you know, in the in the cycle of the pandemic, the, the average hotel in California was probably down maybe 40% in their revenue, which was huge. You know, some markets more than others, obviously San Francisco was hard hit markets like Anaheim that relied on, you know, Disneyland or any sort of convention business was even harder hit. And then when the vaccines came out, things bounced back, you know, fairly nicely. It was a really nice trajectory there. I would say, you know, maybe half of that had been recouped. And then obviously Delta variant came out and everything kind of slowed down again. So we're kind of in this muddle where owners are, kind of making the best of what they can. Uh, you know, they had PPP loans and things to get them through the hardest times. Uh, so there really wasn't a lot of distress. Uh, there really haven't, weren't any foreclosures. I mean, you know, lenders went, you know, fairly easy because if you're going to call one loan, every loan in the bunch was bad. So what are you going to do? It's kind of like the financial crisis, mm -hmm. you know, from, from 10 years ago. So it's just kind of a, a, a wait and see right now. You know, yeah. not a lot of deals happening. You know, a few markets did, you know, fairly well you know, drive to markets, coastal markets, things like that. But for the most part, it's just been, you know, fairly slow, uh, you know, last 12 months as far as deals. Yeah. And, and um, along that lines, I think I remember you talking about how you felt like, well, there was, you know, despite any drops, you know, in income and that kind of thing that was happening, that really the people who were looking to sell were really not looking to discount. They're really not acting in any sort of distress. The deals that are out there, are they behaving the way you would think uh, they would behave based on decreasing amounts of uh, occupancy? Or are they, again, is it, you know, is everybody just saying, I got my PPP, I'm going to just stick through and wait until I can get what I want? Yeah, the deals that are out there, the owners want pre-pandemic you know, pre pricing. And uh, for 95% of the markets, that's just not possible, you know? So everyone's just kind of waiting around. Uh, you know, like I said, the numbers were down maybe 40%. And so in terms of profitability, that's all the profit. You know, if you lose 40% of your revenue, you have an unprofitable hotel. 
And it was a little bit of a bounce back, but you know, it's just, it's very hard to get anything done because yeah. nobody wants to discount it. You know, it's hard to force people to sell. Yeah. It's always yeah. hard. People always think all these deals are going to fall from the trees and it doesn't happen. Even in the financial crisis that went on for, you know, four years, very little happened. And a lot of it's creditor driven. If the lender's not pushing it uh, and that's the case again now, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to, to, to really force people to, to do something, force sellers to do something. Well, that's an interesting point. I didn't know. So in obviously in, in multifamily, um, in, in residential apartment buildings, such, I mean, there was, uh, there was a crunch, right? There was, there was a crunch and hotels in, in the financial crisis, were they more isolated than, than, you know, like apartment buildings? Or more protected, I, think, I guess. Well, because- I think what happened, in the, as I recall, I mean, the bottom line was in order for these banks to take it back, the banks were failing. And then the FDIC would have had to bail them out. And the FDIC right. ran out of money. So you had all sorts of games being played with splitting loans into A pieces, B pieces, C pieces, as many pieces as you need. So you could say, well, some portion of that loan's performing. It's only some little part of it over here that's not performing. Got you see it. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So they really didn't want to want to foreclose and, and have the FDIC have to step up. Yeah. That makes sense. So after four years, not much happened. I mean, there really weren't a lot of distressed sales. And so with, with COVID, which was really, uh, you know, something that came out of left field, it hit us hard. And then we expected to bounce back from it pretty quick. And, and we, for some, to some extent did, and now probably will over the next 12 months as Delta recedes, it's even harder to get, you know, true distressed deals done. Yeah, and then and then the PPP obviously added another level of sort of you know of of cushion. So anything that would have been real distress was not not so distressed anymore. There's there's some guys I know who made more money during the pandemic. Exactly, and now that's forgiven too. I think it's yeah. pretty easy to have the PPP forgiven. Yeah, lenders just added you know the loan balance onto the back you know, back of the loan. Even franchisors were you know you know, going easy. So everyone kind of allowed, you know, everyone was pretty flexible, which is good. I mean, it's good for the market. It's good for owners, but it's, it's bad for true distress sales. Right. And, and it's not really letting the market sort of do what it, it potentially should be doing uh, in, a, right. in a capitalist uh, market. So, but um, I want to take a step back a little bit, Steve, because I know, um, you know, probably a number of people uh, who l- listen to the earlier podcast, um, but there's a lot of new listeners all the time. We are in my group for the most part, we are a, you know, residential multifamily investor groups. And we know a lot about that stuff in hotels. Uh, how do you break down sort of the different kinds of uh, hotels that are out there that, that, you know, an individual or a group can invest in? You know, you have obviously the, at the high end of the large full service properties, luxury properties, you know, from a Ritz Carlton all the way down to a, you know, full service holiday Inn. So you have full service and then you have select service slash limited service. And, um, you know, select service would be anything below full service. It's basically a rooms only operation, Hyatt place, Hampton Inn, you know, Marriott courtyard, all the way down to really economy stuff like motel six. And, you know, really where I would suggest investing is in that select service because you really want to sell rooms. That's where you make your money and everything else, especially in doing business in California, you know, the more employees you have, really the worse, the worse off you are. So you want to limit your, 
your, your employee count. Yeah. Um, so select service is really probably where to go and the margins with some of the new type of select service that are more kind of extended stay oriented. I mean, you can do some really, really great margins, yeah. you know, you can have a, almost like, I mean, an apartment building, I don't know what your margin is, maybe a 65% profit margin before debt uh, with, with a good performing select service, you could be 45 to 50%, which is historically incredibly high for a hotel. Yeah, that is very high. So, so when you talk about cap rates, what does that come out to in a cap rate? Oh God. I mean, cap rates are low because debt's so cheap now. So right. you're probably looking at uh six to 7%, you know, maybe you can borrow, you know, in the, in the mid fours. Does that rely on, you know, whether it's a boutique or, you know, whether it's a full service, select service, that that kind of thing too, or is that generally not, is there not really a, a difference? It doesn't really matter. The hotel nets what it nets. And then you, that's, you derive a value from that. And then the lender will loan on that. Well, not so much on uh, the okay. lender side, but I guess my question would be, um, you know, for cap rates, are they, you know, obviously when, when we talk about multi, multifamily, we've got, you know, you get cap, you know, in, in California, if you want to a class, I mean, it's, you know, a ridiculous cap, right? You're just, you're not going to cash flow. You're never going to cash flow. Uh, whereas, you know, if we go to Phoenix, uh, or if we go to uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, we'll, we'll have a little bit of cash flow and we can leverage that and make more cash flow. Um, mm-hmm. but if you, if we're, you know, we're in the working class space and so we can get a little bit more cash flow, but if we wanted to go to the A class, we're not going to really cash flow. Is it, is it exactly. the same type of thing in hotels? You know, a lot of it's driven by the, you know, the barrier to entry of the market. If it's a market where they can build quite easily, then the cap rate's going to be higher, but then you, you always have the issue. Someone's going to build two or three new deals. Uh, and you're going to have a tough time. So, yeah, I mean, you might see cap rates of as high as eight or nine percent, but mm-hmm. I'd really question that kind of deal in California. I mean, why would a seller have to settle for an eight or nine cap in, in, in this state? It's probably something that needs a lot of capex or is in a market where you're going to have a couple things built and it's really going to hurt you. Sure. So, I think for a well located deal, you know, maybe a seven cap is the number. Yeah. But even that's hard to find. It's just, it's, it's, it's always hard to shake loose deals in California. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have experience outside of California as well? Not really. Yeah. Everything I do is, you know, it's such a big market yeah. that I just stay, uh, I stay in the state. Absolutely. Um, talk about, if you would, you know, how does it work with, say you own a place and it's a selector. Most of them are under the guise of some sort of franchise, right? I mean, is that pretty right. much what you're looking at? You know, whether it's a holiday Inn or uh, whatever is, is, is that's pretty much what you're going to do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I don't know what the rule is, but I would say 80% of the inventory is franchised in some way. Uh, and now you're seeing some of the brands because the customers like to get more kind of boutique stuff. They don't want to be in a cookie cutter room. So you have like Marriott will have their autograph collection. It's mm-hmm. still a Marriott, but it's the, the Marriott's going to be a smaller component to it, but, you, but it's still a branded hotel and the, the franchise fees are going to be a little bit reduced, but the customer is going to see more of a boutique independent type property, even though they probably booked it through their Marriott, you yeah. know, uh, system. Is it possible? I mean, not 
possible is a bad word because of course anything's possible, but, uh, do you see, um, a lot of barriers to success for, for independent owners who are not franchising? I mean, what's, what's everybody's franchising? Why, why is that? I mean, it may, probably is obvious to you, but it's not so obvious for somebody from the outside here. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it will be for the financing, a lender will, will acquire a brand, okay. uh, the loyalty programs, uh, you know, through the, through the brands are, are very popular. So if you have a Marriott name or a Hilton name, you're going to, you know, drive a higher rate, a higher occupancy. Uh, but there are a lot of givebacks on that. I mean, you've got a, um, you know, franchise fees are enormous. Uh, the renovation costs requirements are, are high. If you go to sell, they really kill you on the pit, what they call a PIP the product, mm-hmm. product improvement plan where they require the next owner to do all these upgrades. Right. So, I think the I think the industry is slowly getting away from the brands. The brands are getting uh, less and less relevant, but right now they're they're still dominant. Um, you know, a lot of stuff comes through the uh, uh, you know the trip advisors, the Expedia's, the hotels dot com. You know, that's where that those you know that's where a lot of the business is now booked. It's not coming in through uh, the, the the brand reservation systems. Right. So now the brands own. Expedia and Hotels.com are owned by the same brand, so they one way or the other they're gonna they're gonna get you, you know. Yeah. And and the other thing to point when you look at it, if you sell a room through Expedia, you still so you pay Expedia their twenty percent or whatever their commission is. You then also pay a franchise fee because your franchise fee to Marriott or whatever is based on a percentage of the room revenue. So you pay it several different ways. So to the extent you can get away from the brand. Uh, that's, I mean, that's ideal. Uh, there's so many fees. It's hard to imagine making a profit in this industry, but obviously, obviously you can, people are, um, what, um, how does property management work? Is that usually part and parcel with the, um, the franchise or is that a, is that going to be yet another fee? That's a totally separate deal. I mean, some very few hotels are run, but like, let's say you have a Marriott hotel or a Hilton hotel franchise, very few are going to be run managed by the Marriott or Hilton companies. Uh, you either self manage or uh, you'll hire a third party management company mm-hmm. to run it. So in many ways, it seems like the ideal situation might be for, for somebody who's thinks that they can do a pretty good job, uh, marketing for themselves to, you know, have, you know, a good property management company, but do the marketing and save on franchise fees, right? Yeah. Or the flip side of that is you have a good franchise and because it's such a cookie cutter operation, they're going to tell you exactly what to do. You really don't have to think. Yeah. So then you just have a good general manager and you don't really need so much of a sales and marketing person because so much is coming in through the brand. Yeah. And that's a good point too, because I mean, in, in terms of marketing, you know, it's not like that's for free if you're running on your own, right? You're going to be paying for that as well. So, right. uh, interesting. So, in terms of like, you know, success, I mean, obviously, you know, there's probably statistics on this, but, you know, when you work with buyers, are you typically buying, are you typically working with buyers who have a lot of experience with the hotels? Do you work with people who have not bought them before or, um, you know, how, how has it been in your experience? Is it usually industry, industry people? I'd say it's 50, 50. I mean, some have a lot of experience. Some are coming into it cause they can, 
get a slightly higher yield than they could on a retail center or maybe an apartment building or, or what have you, or they're just, uh, you know, I do a lot of deals with say Korean buyers or Indian buyers or, Mm -hmm. and they just want to kind of run their own business, Mm -hmm. you know, and some, you know, it's rare that I get someone that has had no experience. Uh, they've usually had something, you know, maybe a lower end deal and they're trading up to something nicer. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, hotels are a different animal. Yeah. You know, not really real estate. It's a business. So generally speaking, there's, there's, I mean, the buyer has some experience or they think they have some experience or they think they're knowledgeable or at least Whether maybe in buyer, business. I don't know. Or not. That's yeah. where a lot of the opportunities are because you can buy a deal from somebody who isn't really doing very good revenue, you know, management and you can take the same property and do better. Maybe they're putting too many rooms online and selling them at a discount. Do you find yourself you know? in it being sometimes a little bit of an advisor? to, to your buyers. Um, you know, I know certainly, you know, our mutual friend who introduced me felt like you kind of taught him the business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In his case, he was a true first time buyer, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was, that was, that was unusual. And he was going after a, you know, kind of a very high end boutique. So that was, that was very bold, you know, to go from never having done a deal to saying, well, I'm going to have the highest rated, hotel in the Coachella Valley. And he did it. <laughs> and he did it. You know, did. and that, but, but not many people yeah, can pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's, that was a unique personality, but uh, yeah. Advisor. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, more so about what markets to go into, what markets to kind of stay away from, yeah. you know, and usually with hotels, it's the new inventory. That's, that's the killer. Yeah. You know, because with the new inventory, you may have a Hilton branded hotel, and then the new guy coming in is building a dual branded Hilton. So it'll be home two and, and Hampton, and you may have, you know, a different Hilton brand, you know, so, and they're all going to work that same rest system. So the brands are getting fewer and fewer, right? You know, Marriott bought Starwood. So now most brands are owned by God, the concentration. And that has to be like maybe two or three companies own all the brands or most of the brands. When you have buyers, um, I mean, it, it sounds like to me from what you're saying, depending on the type of asset that you buy, it can potentially be sort of a, almost like a coupon, right? Um, am I wrong about that or is it? Is it yeah, you know, yeah, for periods of time and then you hit a COVID or you hit a financial crisis and then you're back to the point where hotels are rented pretty much day to day. Yeah. You know, so it's a coupon until it's not. And then it's tough and then it bounces back again. So you've got to get a higher yield to compensate you for that. I mean, I imagine apartment buildings probably more stable, although people can stop paying rent. Sure. But meaning from, uh, from the actual, how much, you know, time and energy an individual puts in, obviously our mutual friend puts a lot of energy and time into it. Right. But somebody who's buying, you know, holiday express or whatever. And, you know, is this, uh, is this something like an out of town person could, you know, could, could, buy and, and do reasonably well at, or is it? Yeah. And that it's very much of a cookie cutter concept at that point. Yeah. You know, you are a known brand. It's like if you had a franchise restaurant or something, that's a little harder because you've got all these little transactions every day with a restaurant, but it's the same idea or like a Starbucks, you know, you're going to put a Starbucks in a, in a market and it's going to do well. And it's a cookie cutter operation, you know, until things go, you know, until you hit a downturn and then you're going to have to have to, you know, buckle down and see through it. But, uh, for the most part, it's, it is somewhat of a coupon 
clipping operation. So let's let's just put in an example. Somebody comes in, say it's oh okay, it's me. All right, uh, it's me. I'm coming in and I say, Steve, I'm looking to diversify a little bit. I'm looking for a little bit of better yield. I don't know much about the hotel business, but um, you know, give me some parameters. What what are we going to look at? What types of things are good for a buyer like me in that situation? Like how yeah, big, how, you know, how big should yeah. it be? You know, what, what are the other considerations? I would probably buy a newer select service deal. Um, you know, a Hampton Inn, a home to uh, something like that. I would probably go to a, what I would call a second tier market, not a first tier market. Cause then your cap rate is going to be too low and you're probably, it's, it's going to be hard to make a buck there. Uh, I would stay out of a third tier market where, either the demand's not great or there's just absolutely no barrier to entry. So find kind of what I would call like a second tier market. And then, you know, try to just pick it right where you don't have, you know, again, you don't have a lot of new inventory coming in. And then I think during that, in that little pocket of time, you can do quite well. You know, maybe it's a 10 year period or something. You can Mm -hmm. do quite well. Uh, You know, maybe you could buy at a seven or seven and a half cap. Um you know, uh, maybe self-manage, get a strong enough general manager where you don't have, or, or, or manage, you know, get a third-party management company if you have to. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to get a, you know, double-digit, you know, cash-on-cash return. Yeah. You should, you know, you, you should do better than apartments. I mean, because you're taking on, you know, a little bit more risk. In California, in these secondary markets, um, what is what is the usual... First of all, there's probably there's probably some uh, parameters you have, like don't buy, you know, small, you know, a, a building uh, or a business that has less than so many rooms. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. What, what what would you say that? What's your number? I would on that? say you wouldn't want to be probably under a hundred. Uh, mm-hmm. You probably want to be around 120, 125, maybe 150. That's kind of where that select service box is. Uh-huh. Uh, you go under a hundred, and then you know, the margins just aren't there. You know, it's it's much harder. You got to hire the same people, and you yep. just have less rooms to amortize it over. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, now you get too big. Yeah. Now you just have too many rooms for what the niche of that hotel is in that in that particular market, and then stay away from full service or anything that has a, like a heavy food and beverage component. I mean, for example, you have a Hampton Inn and you have a Hilton Garden Inn. And they're basically, the, they're, they're obviously they're Hilton brands and they're basically the same room, but the Hilton Garden Inn has this big food and beverage concept to it. So you have all these other employees involved. Yeah. And what you really want to do is just sell rooms. So every Hilton Garden Inn owner generally wants to be a Hampton Inn. But when the two brands came out, Hilton Garden Inn, because of its food and beverage, was going to be a premium over a Hampton. And it didn't really work out that way. Right. So stick to basically a rooms only operation. And most of the select service brands are really, really good about that. They'll give you a little food and beverage component, but it's really, really minimal. Um, if you ever go into a Hyatt place, you actually see they have a curved counter. So you come in and you'll be at the checking in and then you want to go get something at the bar. Well, the same guy that checked you in will just walk around the counter and he'll be serving you the espresso or the drink or the, yeah. or the food item that has, you know, he just put in a, in a, in a heater to prepare. It's like a microwave. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, okay. So now we're talking about a hundred, 150 rooms in, uh, mm-hmm. secondary markets in California. What is that going to cost you typically? Uh, probably around number, maybe 20 million, 20 million. 
maybe maybe a low end of 15 and the high of say 25 say 15 to 25 million mm-hmm. okay so now 15 to 20 million and what is the typical um financing is it is it we're talking about mostly sba loans for this type of thing yeah i mean if you do an sba loan and you do all the green the green energy deals the solar panels and all that i mean you can really get in for as low as 15 percent down i mean i'm not sure i recommend that i think Generally speaking, with the SBA, it's probably 25%. Uh, conventional loan is probably more like 35%. Uh, the SBA has, you know, more restrictions on prepay. I think the prepay, it's like a 10-year sliding scale prepay, so it's very onerous for probably the first five years to pay it off, you know, whereas a conventional, you're not going to have that, that, that big of a prepay penalty probably. How difficult is it to get that kind of debt from the SBA on, on um, you know, in an asset of that size? You know, I don't really, f- I, you know, if you work with the right CDC uh, and you find so you find a good mortgage broker that's got good relationships, have done a lot of these deals, it's not really hard at all. I mean, I sold a deal in Bakersfield last year in the middle of COVID and w- they got a high leverage uh, SBA loan. I was really surprised. So if they can get it done then, I mean, they can certainly get it done now. Yeah. And when you have buyers uh, and, you know, say there's, you got to bring it. Was uh, you're saying maybe 25 percent is about the amount that you would feel comfortable. Maybe it's good leverage, but it's not you know 15 sure. percent, right? Mm-hmm. So now we're talking about you know uh, you know a few million dollars down. Um, can you do SBAs um, with? Is it typically just an individual, or can you also do it as an equity group? It's actually, it's an individual's loan. That's a good point. Uh, it's, t- it's a personal loan to an individual mm-hmm. uh, and there's limits to how much debt you can have. That's a, it's a good point. You know, I'm not sure how they do that because I know they obviously they have partners in yeah. there, but someone has to personally sign to the loan. Right. So it's a little different in that respect. Yeah. And it's not uncommon. I mean, even, you know, certainly in the self-storage space, for example, where there's a lot less non-recourse debt. I mean, with, with sure. apartments, it's easy. We, you know, Fannie Freddie non-recourse debt. You have, uh, you have a, you know, you have somebody sign, but it's really a bad boy clause, just basically putting you and saying that you know you're on the hook if you do something illegal or nefarious. Sure. But with uh, you know self storage and stuff, um, typically that's the way we've done it. You have one person who is or a couple people who are guaranteeing the debt and then, you know, the equity group comes in behind it. I just didn't know from, you know, with the way the SBA works and with the government and all that, if, if that's kind of how, if, if that was still kosher or not. Yeah. I think they are personally guaranteed, at least the SBA portion of the loan, because you have a conventional first. I apologize. I don't handle the, the loans directly. I'm somewhat, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I don't know all the specifics, but there's a conventional first, low leverage first, which is easy to get because that's very well protected. And then the SBA makes that riskier piece. And that's, I think, what is personally guaranteed. I'm going to ask you another question that you may, you may not know, but I always, you know, these are the types of things I'm typically looking at as an investor. But so, you know, in these apartment buildings, we typically, um, we get a ton of depreciation, right? And and part mm-hmm. of it is because with apartments, you can take, you know, a significant portion, typically 30% of the acquisition price, uh, you know, during the cost segregation analysis ends up being personal property as opposed to real property. Mm-hmm. And with bonus depreciation, we're taking that all up front. So in many cases, or in some cases, we're literally, you know, we've got as much depreciation as we've got equity. 
and mm-hmm. uh, it's passing all through, um, almost like you know writing off all your investments. You know, I know hotels are not going to be that good. I don't think anything else is, but I'm curious if you know, you know, when you do a cost seg on a hotel, how it looks typically compared to like you know what I just described with uh, apartments. Yeah, I can't speak obviously compared to apartments, but I, I mean, there are kind of general rules with the IRS with the, how they'll allow you to break it out on the mm-hmm. purchase price allocation. What I have heard with clients is that um, you get accelerated depreciation for renovation. Mm-hmm. So the great thing about, about hotels is, you're, you, I mean, not great, but you are constantly putting money back in, yeah. uh, much more wear and tear than you would say on an apartment building or an office building. And I do think that you get to uh, expense a lot of that. Sure. You know, I mean, I know for my personal hotel investments, we've had great years and, and because we've renovated for the next three years, I'm, my tax hit is very low, even though I know the underlying numbers are really strong. On a yearly basis, does the um, depreciation, is it for the most part and the uh, interest on the debt, has it pretty much, pretty much offset your cash flow? Uh, to a large extent, yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, pretty minimal. To a large optimistic. extent. But the offset is, of that is you are putting money into the deal. You are renovating. But you've, you're taking that out of cash flow. And you've, if you've underwritten the deal correctly, you have this, say, 4% reserve that you underwrite all the time. Right. You know, already, and that's already baked into your cap rate that you, when, when you bought the deal. So right now you were saying it still might not be the best time, not a lot of deals trading. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, California, and you probably see this with apartments, it's it's... California is always hard on a cash flow basis to make deals work. I think where you've had success in California is on, on appreciation, yeah. you know, um, you, but, but cash flow is always tough. Uh, yeah, it's really tough now because like I said, it's, it's hard in a, it's hard to get to force people to sell. Nobody ever want, if they don't want to sell, it's really hard to make them sell. And especially when they see their numbers coming back so quick. And now even with Delta, Delta starting to recede. So people think, well, our recovery just got pushed back six months. We'll be out of this thing. And, you know, 80% of California is now vaccinated, you know, so, you know, I got to believe we're, we're coming out of this maybe in that V that we always talked about. Yeah. You know, what I do remember talking about before was I suggested just buying hotel stock. Oh, by the way, let me just say that I don't know how many people emailed me and said, you know, that recommendation Steve had made me a lot of money. Can you please thank him? <laughs> I don't know. I had at least three or four emails, people who went and, you know, you had some REITs that you recommended that apparently just really, you know, hit it big. <laughs> so. Well, you know, the funny thing is at that point, I was a little more bullish that we were going to bounce out of this quicker than we did. I mm-hmm. actually, COVID had a much greater impact than I thought it was going to have. I thought if yeah. it's only impacting us, certain percentage of the population, everyone else will go about their business, but yeah. I underestimated that, but it didn't matter. There was a nice pop in the market justified or not where we, we bottomed out. And I thought that discounts just too great because these companies that are recommended had phenomenal hotels and phenomenal markets. But a lot of those markets like San Francisco really got slammed and they stayed slammed. So if I knew that then what I, you know, but I knew then what I know now, I probably would have been a little more cautious, but it worked out. It worked out really well. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, I was reading Wall Street Journal today and they're saying, oh, you know, hotel stocks are, are, are the great deals. These are what you ought to invest in. And, I, and it said they're really, t- they're not 10% off their peak from pre-COVID. I thought, my God, 10% is nothing. Now they're calling that a great deal. And I'm thinking, boy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest in, it, in something that's pre-pandemic, only 10% off. Right. You know, that's crazy. 
but they're, they're saying that's a great deal. So again, you have to be a contrarian at the time when I recommended it, everyone's like, Oh, hotels are horrible. Don't invest in a hotel. I mean, well, that's, that's crazy. And now they're saying hotels are hot and I'm going, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that deal now to 10% discount. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, you should get it much, much bigger. And when you think about it, you're just talking about the equity, which is just part of the capital stack. So the value per room is probably only down maybe 5% pre pandemic. That's yeah. no bargain. Yeah. So if that's true, I don't think hotel stocks now are a bargain at all. Now I would probably steer clear, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask you if there was, if that's, you you think probably not a good idea now. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really looked into it. I just assumed that there was a moment in time and we hit it and now it's probably, you know, it's probably gone. Yeah. So I didn't really look into it. And then I saw the article and the 10% discount is no you're you're not being reimbursed or you're not being compensated for the kind of risk I think you're taking. Yeah. Especially given. And I think we've seen how stupid policy can get and really now it went from stop the spread to let's have zero infection or something. And and they can really shut you down. I mean, it's crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, it is, it is what it is, you know, like we, um, I think many people, you know, in the contrarian world, uh, like, uh, we kind of are, um, had expected there to be more stuff and discount, but, um, there really wasn't right. I mean, it was a, well, it's, the, it's like I said, when everything is underwater, how does the lender foreclose? Because then the lender is yep. underwater, you know, and, and, the regulators from the get-go on this were saying, we're going to go easy. We're not going to force the lender's hands yep. to make this happen. And, and so I figured nothing's going to happen. And, and I did think this would be somewhat of a V or a U or something, and it would come out of it pretty quickly. It wasn't like a normal uh, financial recession, which could go on for four years. And then even if the lenders want to look the other way, they can't at some point. You know? But here I figured we'd get out of it quick enough that they would be able to, and I think that's what happened. what's happened. What do you think in terms of uh, long-term, uh, you know, hotels? You're still bullish. You still think it's a good place to be, obviously. Tell us the case for hotels in the next decade. Yeah, I think hotels, again, I think long-term you get rewarded for the risk that you take, you know, um, uh, because it's an operating business. And in good times, they do very well. You just have to probably have a bigger financial cushion than you thought you needed because things happen. COVID happens. The next COVID will happen. And you just you just have to have, you got to, you got to be able to, 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 to withstand it, withstand that 12 or 18 month, you know, period, you know? Um, but otherwise I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good. Uh, be, be wary of, uh, you know, low barrier to entry markets. Luckily in California, California is pretty tough to build in, you know, uh, generally speaking, although some markets you can slap things up pretty quick. The cities are, you know, real bullish. Um, so you have to be careful of new inventory, but those are few markets. Most markets are, are, are pretty high barrier entry. And I would also look out for what did COVID do long-term to um, like CBDs, like downtown LA or certain markets, uh, are those going to come back or are you going to have now remote work? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's something, what, what's, what's happened that's going to stick with us? What was kind of already happening in COVID just accelerated the trend. CBDs. Um, what is CBD? What is, uh, Central Business District. Okay, Central Business. You know how many people yeah. are going to now want to go back and commute an hour to get yeah, downtown and, and when they got comfortable in their living room? So those probably are probably less people flying in. Uh, you know, to to meetings, right? Because they're all you know they're all doing Zoom now. Yeah. So I'd be wary of convention heavy, heavy convention markets. Um, 
you know, this exposed some things, uh, you know, markets like Anaheim with Disneyland, where you have that one big demand generator and something like this hits, just be wary of that. Cause I think it exposed how vulnerable some of those, some of those areas are that we never, you know, oh, Disney's bulletproof, yeah. Disneyland bulletproof. It's great. It is, but you've got to build in these cushions for the moments like this. Yeah. Good stuff, Steve. Uh, it's always good talking to you. What uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you? Uh, website? Uh, Titan Hospitality One at Gmail. Fantastic. That's, uh, that's the email. And is there a website associated with that? Yeah, Titan-Hospitality.com. Perfect, Steve Usher. Thank you again, my friend. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you on uh, you know another six months or so and see how this hotel thing is working out. It's something I definitely am interested in uh, focusing on potentially in the future myself. Great. It's never a dull moment. See you right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Steve is a, I think Steve is a great guy and he's smart. I think it's really cool that he comes on here and he's like, yeah, it's, you know, last time he's like, it's, there's nothing to buy, you know, uh, invest in these REITs and then a people make a bunch of money. He's just like one of the guys you want to, you know, if you're interested in this space, he's a good guy to talk to because the, you know, brokers are notoriously are bad about just selling you on things that they don't believe in stuff. But Steve's definitely not one of those guys. So if you're interested in hotels and you live in California in particular, make sure to reach out to him. But otherwise, pretty cool stuff uh, just to catch up on. I do want to remind you before we go a uh, couple things. First, you know, we have had a, a bunch of new members on Wealth Formula Network, and it's really just a really great opportunity, again, to get into a rhythm of, you know, drilling down on personal finance with a group of people who is interested as well. So check out that whole thing, the course and the the group and everything all comes in one, wealthformularoadmap.com. And the last thing I want to mention, and I don't mention it very often, but I need a favor from you. You have not done so. Go to wealthformula.com. There's a little button there that basically guides you on how to do a review on iTunes. Maybe you already know how to do it, so you don't need to do the leave us a review thing. But if you get a lot out of the show, if you think that you know we're doing a good job, make sure to go ahead and give us five stars and write a comment. I had some really good comments and I should read them sometime. You know, one of them was said something like, you know, it's the only podcast that makes me money. That makes me feel good. You know, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do is trying to help people get ahead in this financial world. But go to uh, check that out if you can leave us a five-star review. That's it for me on uh, this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.